Let's pray one more time. Father, as uh, we open uh, your word revealed to us, come and speak by your spirit to us. Inhabit this place. Speak to your people. And draw us to yourself and to your son and through your spirit, we pray in the wonderful and the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So as a young high school student, I got my first, well, not my first job, but my first job working in a restaurant, uh, you know, about midway through my high school career. And I started in the back of the house, you know, cooking burgers, hot dogs, the things that, because of the needs of the restaurant at one point, he switched me all of a sudden to the front of the house to, to wait tables. Um, and this particular boss, I wouldn't say he was a particularly good boss, uh, my training consisted about, about five minutes worth of just, you know, some scattered notes, and then he just sent me on my way to do, well, to do, get the job done, right? Thrown out there, left to do it, and I know it seems like a pretty simple job, and, you know, for the most part, it is, but there's, there's also, you never know, you don't know all the, the struggles you're going to have till you jump into to something, and so nothing was... Sh- you know, shared about, you know, how to deal with customers, you know, what to do when you're in the weeds, you know, what to do with a a dozen different situations, or even how to write up the ticket order. And so, you know, I'm doing my best trying to, you know, get the job done as he kind of secludes himself in his office in the back, only to emerge every so often just to yell at me for not doing something I was never told to do. It's fun times, right? Um, Now, I don't know if that's unique. I, I think at some point all of us have been thrown into a situation, just expected to know what to do, expected to, to have you know, all the tools readily at our disposal, and then we get into the situation and we realize, well, I don't have those tools. Right? You get a job that doesn't have training, or you give birth to your firstborn child, and as the nurse packs you on your, your way, and you're just like, no one told us how to parent. Or perhaps you were living in a day before YouTube where you were expected to be able to fix something without watching three dozen tutorials and how-to things. I feel bad for everyone born before YouTube. I'm thankful that as we're looking for clickers, that includes training. It may sound simple, you know, you just click. And then you get in this situation and you realize, well, I don't know what to do when things go wrong. There's very often times we get thrown in situations and we're just expected to know how to do it. And when we get there and we realize, well, I don't know all I need to know, well, it's kind of pretty intimidating, pretty frustrating. And for some of us, we think that that's the Christian life. Right? We responded to a call that we heard you know, in youth group or in a church service. We gave our lives to Jesus. And now, well, we're expected to do the stuff. And there's a lot of problems with that. Yes, I mean, they're, unlike my boss, there, there are instructions on how to do it, right? We have the scriptures, but I don't know if you realize, but that's a pretty big book. And sometimes, even if I, you know, read something, I don't necessarily understand it. It's an old book. But the worst part is, when I've read something, and I do understand it, to actually implement it. It's a hard book. Right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I get what it's saying. How do I do that? Forgive your enemies or forgive those who've wronged you as you've been forgiven? It's not a hard concept. Once I've been wronged, it becomes impossible. Love your enemies. 
pray for those who persecute you? See, it's not just the failure of understanding. It's the failure of implementing. And, it, and, the, and the scriptures demanding, well, something that seems impossible. That what I can't do, I can't love the Lord with all my heart, soul, and mind and strength. And yet it's demanded. It's expected. It's required. And for many of us, we feel like we're just thrown out there with God cloistered up in heaven only to emerge when he's mad at us. You didn't do the stuff. You didn't get it done. Now, to address these issues, it requires more than just a sermon. It really requires you know, the, a whole idea of how we are discipled as God's people to do, well, as Jesus says, to you know, teach us to obey all that he's commanded us. But I do want to address one particular thing, and really just one particular aspect of that thing, about this idea that God has left it to us to accomplish all that he requires. That he's just, hey, do this. Get it done. I'll see you when I come back. That, it couldn't be further from the truth for, for many different ways. Um, but in particular, as we are preparing to, to well, take the Lord's Supper together, if we take the words of the Scripture seriously, it's here where God meets us. Meets us in a special way, in a unique way. And his grace to his people is extended to us in a unique and a special way. Last week, we began this series on the sacraments talking about uh, baptism and and how through that, you know, we are joined into the people of God and we experience a unique grace of God in baptism. Today, we are going to take a look at the, the other sacrament in the Protestant tradition, the Lord's Supper often talked about as you know, communion or the Eucharist. I'm not you know, set on terms as much as the idea that this is the means by which God extends a grace to his people, a unique, a unique way that God extends his grace to his people. And last week we began talking about making this analogy of, of really marriage and a wedding, right? That in a wedding, you know, we see lots of things, we hear lots of things, we experience lots of things. A processional, music, vows, the kiss. But as people who believe the words of Jesus, we know that behind these things that we can see and hear and experience, there's an invisible work that God is doing. He's joining together a husband and a wife. That God is at work behind what we can see with what we cannot see. And in the sacraments, God is also at work. In the breaking of bread, the pouring of, of wine, the submerging of you know, a, a, someone being baptized, God is using that to do something among his people. And if you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, it's on page 1168. And we're going to be talking about, well, part of what God does as he invites us to his table. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting at, at verse 14. And I want to give you a background of uh, Paul's argument and the situation that he's dealing with. The people in Corinth, well, they are, well, some of them at least, are eating food that's been sacrificed to idols. And, you know, it's a pretty complex argument as Paul gives different reasons to, to not participate or when it's not necessarily that big of a deal. But he gets to, in verse 14, um, you know, talking to these people who are 
well, eating food that's been sacrificed to idols, perhaps even in a, a pagan temple context. And this is what he writes, starting at verse 14. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf. We who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. So consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean that the food sacrificed to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I don't want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Now, as we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, as Paul's describing what's happening here at the table, he's saying is, you know, we are participating in the body and the blood of the Lord. Now, what does it mean to participate? Well, we can tell what it doesn't mean. It doesn't simply mean, you know, something that has to do with our cognitive process by which we approach the table. Well, how do we know that? Well, because he compares it to those who are eating meat sacrificed to idols. And, and what would they say? Well, if you go back, you can, you can see that their argument, and it's a very spiritual-sounding argument, is, listen, we follow the true God. We follow Jesus. We know that he is, he is God, and these idols are, are nothing. Aphrodite doesn't exist. Zeus isn't real. So what if we go into a temple and eat this meat that's sacrificed to idols? These aren't real gods. It's just a community event. And we get free or cheap meat. We get to eat. We get to celebrate. We like to be in the the community. And what? Okay, it's sacrificed to idols. Not a big deal. But Paul's saying, no, no. Despite you thinking that it's not a big deal, despite you having even these seemingly good spiritual reasons, hey, you know, Aphrodite doesn't exist, there's still something that's happening. A participation with demons, he says. A participation with the forces of evil that despite what you think, you are participating. You are engaging with them. And in the, in the same sense, you know, when you come to the Lord's table, You participate with the Lord. You participate with Christ. That you are being opened up to experience who he is. That there's a special grace here for the people of God. As we break bread, as we drink from the cup, that God meets his people to change and transform us. It is, well, participation, or your versions might say, the sharing in the Lord. You know, as, we, as I began last week talking about baptism and you know, you know, relating it to, to a wedding, you know, at some level that's, that's fitting because you know, baptism is kind of like a wedding. Right? It is this, this special moment of grace where we become well, a new person. 
We're joined to a new person. We receive a new identity. We receive other aspects where, where who we were before is no longer who we are. But baptism was a one-time event, like a a marriage is a one-time event. But what sustains that relationship? Well, the continually coming together again. And communion is like that for baptism. Or or communion relates like that to baptism. It's why the, the church throughout history required that you to be baptized to receive communion. That you join the people of God, and then you experience the regular ongoing communion with the Lord. And so Paul, as he's talking about what, what we receive, what we're doing with the body and the blood, it's, it's coming and participating with the Lord himself who has made himself available to us. But how do we approach? How do we draw near? It's perhaps not as simple of a question as we, we may like to think, despite having done it, um, many times, but if you would, turn again to the next chapter, chapter 11 in 1 Corinthians. It's on page 1169, if you would, and we're going to be starting at uh, verse 23. And in here, uh, Paul's addressing another problem with the people as they come together and actually have the Lord's Supper together. You see, yeah, they were so bad that he, you know, he begins this section by saying, listen, it's you're doing more harm than good. It'd be better for you guys not even to meet at all than to come together the way you are. And why is that? Well, some of them are coming, the wealthy, and they're being gluttons and getting drunk, and others are coming who are poor and going hungry. Some are feasting and others are suffering famine. And he's saying, like, this is contradictory to all that the Lord's Supper is about. And so we're going to be picking up in his argument in chapter 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That's why so many among you are weak and sick. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, brothers and sisters, when you gather together to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who's hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions." So as we approach the Lord's table, as we draw near to receive the grace of God, I want to talk about five things we ought to do in order to receive God's grace. The first one is we look back. 
You look back. Read with me again, starting at verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you, the Lord Jesus. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Right? As Jesus is calling the people, as we go through this ritual, is to remember, first and foremost, to think about what he has done. What he has done to save us. What he has done to deliver us. What he has done in order to, to make us right before him. His body broken. His blood shed. Poured out for us. And oftentimes, I know as we approach, we view it almost a little bit, we just go through the motions. We forget to remember And we fail to rejoice in what Christ is offering. Because he was broken, we are made whole. Because his blood was shed, we are forgiven. And so Christ, first and foremost, he calls us to remember all that he's done. Now, I remember a few years ago, um, I was giving a little seminar to, you know, some adults, mostly parents, some grandparents, and it's about, you know, the, you know, use of technology among, you know, kids, particularly youth, youth-aged kids. And, um, and one of the things that I had the parents do, and the, you know, or the adults do, is I had set out a whole bunch of yearbooks on, on tables and just gave them like five to ten minutes just to page through these yearbooks. They weren't theirs. They're just, but even as they started paging through all these, all these yearbooks and just kind of all the, the, flood of emotions of what high school experience was like for them came rushing back to all of them. You know, just they, they saw this picture and, you know, all the, you know, for some of them, it was nostalgia at its finest, just, you know, the carefree days of high school, you know, just flooding back like, oh, I, that was a sweet time. For most, it, it was not so pleasant. The awkwardness of high school, the being perhaps a little socially excluded in, in different things or all just, you know, the, the feelings of you know, not fitting in or, or trying to find your way. Well, again, you know, thrown in and expected to know what to do and just not really knowing what to do. All those emotions came flooding back just by paging through a yearbook that wasn't even their own. They remembered all those feelings. You know, and in doing so, you know, I would encourage them in just... You know, ha- you know, having sympathy for the plight of our kids who are experiencing those, you know, feelings in the technological age. But the, but the truth is, you know, as we are, as we come and we partake in this, what we are invited to is to experience afresh those feelings of, well, being united to Christ, receiving, you know, the, you know, perhaps the, for the, you know, the first time in our life, you know, His poured out. Uh, blood that's shed for our sins, to remember the sacrifice that he made, that we could be made whole. And so we look back and we come rejoicing in what he's done for us. Not only do we look back and come rejoicing, but we also look forward. Did you catch that in verse 26? What does Paul write? He says, for whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, this isn't just a temporal marker. 
it's meant to be, you know, uh, uh, helping us focus on what we do as we come to the table. It's not merely to look back, but it's also to look forward to the things that God is offering us in Christ. That this is a foretaste. This is the, the hors d'oeuvres for the people of God before we come to the wedding feast of the Lamb. This is the small taste of all that Christ wants to offers to his people, the one that we await when he comes back for us. And so we look ahead and we become hopeful. We become hopeful in what he's offering. Jesus himself, in Matthew 26, he, he writes that, you know, when he took the cup and he given thanks and he gave it to them, saying, drink all of it. This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins. And I tell you, verse 29, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I can drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. There is a forward aspect to, to the Lord's Supper, the awaiting of the wedding feast of the Lamb, the drawing near of the, the fullness of the union that we are to experience, that we look forward to, that we await. Now, for those of you who grew up uh, in the you know, pre-iPhone, pre-FaceTime, pre-Skype days, and you had to go away for a while, what did you carry with you? Many, you, know, you perhaps you had to, to go off to war or go away on business. And most of you probably carried a pitcher, right? Something to, to remember those who well, you're going to be returning to. And what does that pitcher do for you? Does it simply remind you of what once was? Or does it make you long for what will be? Does it give you a renewed determination to, to push through, that you can be reunited with the loved ones left behind? And as we come to the table, that's what we're called to do. We get this picture that, that pushes us to look back, but also one that, that makes us look forward to all that God is offering to us through Christ as we await the wedding supper of the Lamb. And not only do we look back and come rejoicing or look forward and come hopeful, but we also we look within. What does Paul say? Verse 27. So then, whoever eats the bread, drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. And he goes on to say that some are getting weak and sick, some even dying as they come in an unworthy manner, he says, to participate in the body and the blood of the Lord. Now, I don't know if you remember a few weeks ago when we talked about, you know, going through the ark narrative and we, we had that that one story as the, they brought the ark before, the, you know, brought it back before the people of God. And rather than treat the, holy, you know, the holiness of the ark with respect and honor, they did what the Lord called them not to do. They sacrificed the wrong sacrifice. They, you know, rather than covering it as the Lord requires, they, they, put it, they propped it open for all to see. And they gazed upon it and it says the Lord broke out against them. And modern-day Martianites who tend to think that the God of the Old Testament is inherently different from the God of the New Testament, well, Paul would disagree with us here, wouldn't he? He says, 
as we come before the, and participate, and we come before the, you know, well, and receive what's holy, to do so in an unworthy manner brings judgment upon ourselves. The same God. We can't just say, oh, that was the Old Testament God, but now we have Jesus. He's saying, no, as we participate in the body and the blood of the Lord, oh, do so carefully. We look within and we come repentant. We confess our sins. We repent from our sins. We turn from our sins. This is not to say that, you know, you have to be sinlessly perfect to come before, before, before the table because then no one would come. As uh, the British theologian and pastor Andrew Wilson remarks, he says, the Eucharist is not a congratulatory banquet for the sinless. It's the sustaining meal for repentant sinners who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, but know they have fallen short. So as we come, we look in, within, not in some Eastern sense looking for uh, guidance and, and you know, to show us the true way. No, we look within to find our sin to repent and confess that we can find forgiveness and grace before his throne. So we look back and come rejoicing. We look forward, we come hopeful. We look within, we come repentant, and we look around. He goes on to say, So then, brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who's hungry should eat at home, so that when you meet together, it will not result in judgment. He's returning to the initial problem, you know, that those some were coming and, and feasting and gorging themselves, even becoming drunk, and others were, were going home hungry. And the division that was happening between the people of God as they came together, well, it was, it was, it was such where he's saying, it'd be better for you not to meet at all. And his logic is, I think, airtight. As we come and we are united to Christ, that those who also come and are united to Christ, well, we are to be united with them. That they are our brothers. They are our sisters. And that what our differences are and our frustration, that if we are not practicing an active unity with them, well, we are not taking seriously what we are engaging in. And Paul warns for his, these people, judgment Judgment before God. That there is one loaf because there's one body. And you might object. You may be sitting next to somebody and say, well, I don't really like them. They have different politics. They have different goals. They, quite frankly, are a little embarrassing. They're the kind of Christian that I have to say, you know, I have to qualify my own faith by and say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm not like that guy. That we want, to, we want to exclude them from ourselves. But as we come and we participate and we, and we break bread together and we are united to Christ together, we don't have such an option. I remember I had a, a guy who, who was a, my, actually a, a Sunday school teacher for, for several years and at some point, I don't know what happened, but he came uh, embittered and, and frustrated so much with the church where he completely separated himself from the life of the body. And I remember you know, speaking to him one time and as I was you know, visiting home and we got to hang out and he, I was just 
suggesting, like, you know, you should really connect yourself with the body. You know, this is, this is something that's, you know, despite the frustrations that you may have, this is God's will for his people to be connected to the body. And he's like, well, no, I don't want to. They're hypocrites. They're jerks. You know, the series of his life was, you know, one burn bridge and unraveled relationship after another, oftentimes in the church, but in every direction of his life. I remember responding to him like, listen, you cannot love Christ and hate his bride. And his response, which is the most antithetical thing to, to the people of God, is, well, you know, it's Christ's bride, not mine. I have no responsibility to love her. But such is oftentimes our, you know, the, the case as we, as we don't necessarily want to come together in unity. The other person is frustrating. They're a hypocrite. They have stuff. Yeah, I want to be connected to Christ, but not his people. But such an option doesn't exist for the people of God. And so as we come and we look around, we, we come concerned for others, concerned for the unity of the church, which means to come forgiving those who've wronged us. That we don't hold on to our own bitterness and frustration. A few, uh, a few years ago, I remember giving, going through the, the normal communion liturgy and, and you know, some words that were very similar to that's what's been spoken dozens and dozens of times before, that the invitation to come for those who are in uh, love and charity with their neighbors. And one woman, for some reason, it, it, she picked up on it for the first time. <clears throat> and afterwards, you know, she came up to me, she's like, are you saying that if I don't forgive somebody, I shouldn't come to the table? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Not, well, not me. This is what the church has proclaimed for, for centuries. I can't hold on to my bitterness and to Christ at the same time. It's inconceivable. And she had been, she had been nursing a grudge for, for many you know, months, if not years, of you know, somebody within the congregation who had offended her and wronged her and didn't want to let it go. And it wasn't until this this realization that I can't come and participate with Christ here as long as I hold on to this bitterness. And so as we come and we we look around, we look to to preserve the unity of the church. These are our brothers. That these are our sisters. And so we look back and come rejoicing. We look forward and come hopeful. We look within and we come repentant. We look around and we come concerned. And lastly, we look up and we come receptive. That in this moment, Christ is offering us his grace and himself. This is my body, which is for you. It's for you. You receive it. You receive the grace of God as he, as he offers it to his people. That in these moments, we are not nearly thinking that that happens. We are receiving. And that God is offering himself to us through broken bread and poured out wine. And in the Lord's Supper, we receive the grace of God to apply all the things that he demands of us. The sin that we, have, you know, that we have committed and we receive his grace afresh. 
We receive the grace that transforms us into the image and likeness of his son. We receive the grace that prepares us for the wedding supper of the lamb. We receive the grace that changes us who are bent on sin and yet find new life through broken bread and poured out wine. And we receive Christ himself as the Father welcomes us to his table. So look back and rejoice. Look forward with hope. Look within and repent. Look around and care for your brothers and sisters. But in all, look above and receive the grace of God offered to us through his Son.